Good evening. Welcome to Voice in the Wilderness. I'm Don Noble of Pure Heart Ministries, and I welcome you today with exceedingly abundantly and overflowing joy. Last week, I mentioned that I would be starting a new series tonight on the seven cities of Revelation. But before I get into it, I want to remind you that I have started uh, at the Bible study. We have started the book of Acts, one of the most exciting books of the New Testament. It's all about how the Holy Spirit works in ordinary people to do extraordinary things. So you get to witness all these biblical characters who do some really mighty signs and wonders. And that's what we're expected to do today on this earth. So will you join me for our Bible study Wednesday night, 6 p.m., Top Hat Pools and Stoves. This is downtown Wheeling, West Virginia, 2258 Main Street, Wheeling. So come and join us and learn about the book of Acts. Well, tonight we are starting on the seven cities of Revelation. Now, I'm not teaching the whole book of Revelation. I'm only teaching these seven cities, and which are mostly uh, described in the second chapter of Revelation. But I do want to introduce us to John, who wrote the book of Revelation, of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. It was John the Apostle. And so who was this John that we're talking about? Well, John often refers to himself in Scripture a lot in the Gospel of John that he wrote and also in the book of Revelation as the disciple whom Jesus loved. John was the youngest of Jesus' disciples. He and his brother James, they were from Galilee and they were fishermen. And they were called out of the boat by Jesus to become fishers of men. Let's just look at those scriptures quickly. You have your Bible. I'm out of the New King James Version tonight. And this is Matthew chapter 4. Verses 18 through 22. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat, with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. He called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So that's the beginning of John's ministry, traveling alongside Jesus throughout Jesus' earthly ministry. In the book of Mark, chapter 3, verse 17, Jesus dubbed these brothers the sons of thunder. Now, why he called them the sons of thunder, we have no idea. I think you can kind of take your imagination and figure out that these two boys were probably pretty zealous, pretty strong dudes, hard working, um, no fooling, um, uh, like these are guys you don't want to mess around with. 
Anyway, that's what Jesus called them, the sons of thunder. Now, John, as well as many of the disciples, saw countless miracles of Jesus. But John and two of his friends got to see a specific miracle that the others weren't in on. So if we look at Mark chapter 5, um, this is the raising of Jairus's daughter. And it starts, we'll start with verse 21, Mark chapter 5. Now, when Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a great, great multitude gathered to him, and he was by the sea. And behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue came, Jairus by name, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. And he begged him earnestly, saying, My little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, that she may be healed, and she will live. So Jesus went with him, and a great multitude followed him and thronged him. Now this is where it gets interesting, because the next verse says, Now there was a woman who had an issue of blood for 12 years. So there's an interruption. Jairus is walking with Jesus. They're going to head to his home. But in the meantime, Jesus gets delayed. And during this delay, this woman with an issue of blood ends up in this large crowd touching Jesus' garment. And immediately she is healed of that affliction. And Jesus, knowing that power had gone out from him, turned around in the crowd and he said, Who touched my clothes? And the disciples said, Well, my goodness, there's tons of people thronging you and you're asking who touched you. But he looked around and he saw her and she was trembling. And she fell down before Jesus and told him the whole truth. And Jesus said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. While Jesus was still speaking, some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not be afraid, only believe. And he permitted no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. Then he came into the house of the ruler of the synagogue and saw a tumult and those who wept and wailed loudly. And he said to them, why make this commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him, but he had put them all outside. He took the father and the mother of the child and those who were with him, Peter, James, and John, and entered where the child was lying, took her by the hand, and said, Little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl arose. So John was in on that particular miracle. Then another interesting thing happened with John. And actually these, these three same fellows, Peter, James, and John. And we see that in the book of... Um, Matthew 17, and this is uh, Jesus being transfigured on the mount 
Chapter 17, Matthew, verse 1. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And while Peter was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. So John and the two other disciples got to witness something, a really spectacular event that no one else got to see. Now, Jesus, in John chapter 19, then commissions this John, and he's on the cross. This is chapter 19 of the Gospel of John, starting with verse 25. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother, and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore foresaw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. And we know historically, and I've been there, that John uh, moved eventually to Ephesus. And there he took care of Jesus' mother. They are both buried there in Ephesus. So upon Jesus' command, John took care of the Lord's mother. John also witnessed the empty tomb. He wasn't first. No, Mary Magdalene was the first. And in chapter 20 of the Gospel of John, it says in verse 2, She ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. And we know that was John. And said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they've laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following and went into the tomb, and he saw the lying, the linen clothes lying there and the handkerchief that had been around Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, John, who came to the tomb first, went in also, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. John also witnessed Jesus' ascension. Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11 tell us that. And of course, John was there at the giving of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2.
John became one of the most influential leaders in the early Christian church. He boldly proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ. He also wrote the letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, where he is defending the gospel. He is defending Jesus as the Son of God. And um, John passed down his incredible wealth of knowledge and teachings to students like Polycarp and Ignatius, both of whom were numbered among the church fathers. They were disciples of John. Let's talk about John and his exile. So Christianity was spreading like wildfire across the Roman Empire. And of course, they were being persecuted like crazy. And the more they were persecuted, the more Christianity spread. Rome was all about pagan worship. And they were intent on stopping this Christianity. And they would punish anyone who rejected the deity of its emperors. And so by the late first century, many of John's friends had been martyred for their faith. John was the last living apostle, and he was exiled to a very small island in the Aegean Sea. It's about 60 miles south, uh, that would be southeast of Turkey, the nation of Turkey. And um, tradition holds that the emperor Domitian sent him there. Although some scholars argue that John was exiled earlier, around 69 AD, nevertheless, it really doesn't matter. But this is the island on which John wrote the book of Revelation. I have been there. It's a very small island. And uh, in a cave on the island, this is where John encountered Jesus. And that's where John was given a letter to share with each of the seven churches of Asia Minor by Jesus. And um, this incredible vision uh, of Jesus, of the resurrected, glorified Christ, it would be the catalyst for the book of Revelation. And so in this vision, Jesus spoke directly to seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. All of these churches were real churches in the land of modern-day Turkey. I have been there. My husband and I traveled there in 2005. <clears throat> we went to each of those seven churches. We saw the remnants of those churches and some had uh, wonderful excavations, wonderful archaeological remnants, but a few, it was really almost hard to know that a church existed there. But, I mean, we're talking a long, almost 2,000 years ago. And it is amazing. But and sadly, on a sad note, those churches no longer exist. So let's talk about this island of Patmos, I want to share something. I've, I found some really wonderful information in a book called The Seven Churches of Revelation by Christoph Hanauer, and it's by Revelation Media, and I found this really interesting. I had not known this, but P 
Patmos, this island, belongs to the, um, I don't know if I'm going to pronounce it right, Dodecanese Archipelago in the, Aege in the Aegean Sea, not far off the coast of Turkey, as I mentioned. And at the time when John was on this island, it was a Roman province, and, and pretty much they just sent their castaways there and prisoners to this island. This island is only 7.5 miles long. It's arid, it's mountainous, and it has managed to jealously protect itself in the modern world despite tourist and religious pilgrimages. This island is considered to be sacred. It is home to more than 500 churches spread across its terrain today. It's hard to believe. It's only 7.5 miles Scholars assert that historical and archaeological evidence point to the apostle having been on the island, and tradition holds that he preached to the inhabitants there who were numerous at the time of his writings. Patmos happens to be home to a sprawling monastery, St. John, and it towers over the small town of Aurora. It was built in 1088 by St. Christodul on the highest point of the island to protect it from the pirates' in the Aegean Sea, and it was commissioned by a Byzantine emperor at the time, Alexius I Comenus. Over time, this monastery became the center for monks producing religious icons. It also houses very early religious manuscripts, such as the oldest known copy of the Gospel of Mark and Codex Purpurus, the 5th century document, is one of the oldest illuminated manuscripts in the world. From the Byzantine era to the end of the 19th century, several hundred manuscripts were collected in this monastery, making it one of the oldest and most extensive libraries dedicated to the Byzantine period. Magnificent frescoes adorn the walls and exterior facade of the monastery church, and they witness to John's presence on the island. He is depicted as being accompanied by his disciple Procurus, who followed him from Jerusalem. Frequently, religious icons show the two men together. Procurus is named once in the New Testament book of Acts, chapter 6, and he's one of the seven who received the laying on of hands as deacons in the service of neglected widows. Although he is not named in the book of Revelation, church history attests to the fact that Procorus was John's amanuensis, meaning that he wrote the book of Revelation as John dictated it. In fact, this is exactly how he is depicted in Orthodox iconography, with a pen in hand next to the Apostle John. Now, being more knowledgeable about the Greek language, Prochorus could take the indescribable vision of John and write it down sufficiently so that it would be understood by native speakers. John is known for his relatively simplistic Greek in his other books. But Procurus's involvement in the writing of Revelation accounts for the elevated vocabulary that would come from a more capable Greek author. According to tradition, for the two years that they were on Patmos, 
John and Prochorus found refuge in a cave, the Cave of the Apocalypse. The cave functioned for them as a shelter and a place of spiritual retreat in which the men would pray and meditate, and it has since been made into a place of Orthodox worship, and it remains so today. So when was the book of Revelation even written? Well, some scholars believe it was written before 70 AD, the destruction of Jerusalem. Others, uh, based on statements by early church fathers, date the book near the end of the Rome of Domitian, which was 81 AD to 96 AD after John had fled to Ephesus. This book was written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and John was given the prophecy of the impending intensification of spiritual warfare confronting the church. The purpose of the message was to provide pastoral encouragement to persecuted Christians by comforting, challenging, and proclaiming the sure and certain Christian hope, together with the assurance that in Christ, they were sharing in the sovereign God's method of totally overcoming the forces of evil in all its manifestations. It also gives an evangelistic appeal to those who are presently living in the kingdom of darkness to enter the kingdom of light. Regarding the content, the central message of the book of Revelation is this, that the Lord God omnipotent reigns. This theme has been validated in history by the victory of the Lamb, who is the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Yet those who follow the Lamb are involved in a continuing spiritual conflict, and Revelation thus provides deeper insight into the nature and tactics of the enemy. The dragon that is referred to in the book of Revelation, frustrated by his defeat at the cross, and the consequent restraints placed upon his activity, and desperate to thwart the purposes of God before his inevitable doom, develops a counterfeit trinity to make war on the saints. God has created the orders of community, that is, marriage and the family and economic activity, government and the state. Satan, unable to create anything, tempts others to distort and misuse what God has created. Christians must discern whether a government is functioning under divine authority or as a divine authority. When the latter is the case, Christians must pray, courageous, courageously endure, and patiently accept the consequences of obeying the God whose image and seal they bear. They must do so in the confidence that after their victorious, victorious sufferings, they will reign with him. Behind the appearances of the pomp and power of the world, there is the reality of the absolute sovereignty of the Lord God, who is the Lamb, which ensures the ultimate doom of sin and evil. God is utilizing all the forces of evil, all the consequences of sin, 
even the suffering of his saints, to accomplish his own purposes. Believers undergoing persecution need to know that their sufferings are not meaningless, and ultimately they will be vindicated. The mainspring of Christian hope and courage is the certainty that the enemy has been defeated and he is doomed, and that the followers of the Lamb are not fighting a losing cause. He has already overcome, and therefore they can and will be overcomers. As a preface, Revelation begins and ends as a typical New Testament letter. Although containing seven letters to the seven churches, it is clear that every member is to hear the message to each of the churches, as well as the message of the entire book, in order that they might obey it. Within this letter is the prophecy. According to Paul, he who prophesies speaks edification, exhortation, and comfort to all men. The prophet speaks God's word as a call to obedience in the present and immediate future situation in light of the ultimate future. This prophecy was not to be sealed up because it is relevant to Christians in every generation. I think I'm going to stop there and next week we, uh, I, I again, I will have a brief introduction before actually starting into uh, chapter one of Revelation, and we will go through that before we actually start chapter two, talking about the seven cities. It's important to lay the groundwork for what we're going to be talking about. This is a very important book for us as Christians to read and to understand. But I hope that you will follow closely and in preparation for next week, uh, I would encourage you to read chapters 1 and 2 of the book of Revelation and be prepared to take notes. There's a lot of information. It's important that you understand that God is going to be speaking to you individually. Once we get into each church, God will be speaking to you individually. And so you want to have an ear to hear what the Spirit is saying to you. Amen? Because what he says to each of us individually will be different. But it's important that you understand that we are at the end of the end of the end of times. We are there. We are in it right now. And so we want to be very diligent to heed what the Holy Spirit has written to us through the Apostle John from Jesus Christ to us. Amen. Well, this is Dawn Noble. I look forward to being with you again next week. You can go to www.pureheart.today and listen to this podcast again. You can download the iHeartRadio app and go to podcasts. Pure Heart Ministries is the podcast and listen to this 24-7. And of course, you can email me all lower cases, D-A-W-N at pureheart.today. That's D-A-W-N at 
pureheart.today. And I'd love for you to email me. And of course, thank you always for your prayers. They are important and I appreciate them. Please consider helping to support this ministry. You can send a check to Pure Heart Ministries, P.O. Box 85, Valley Grove, West Virginia, 26060. Well, this is Don Noble once again saying, I look forward to being with you again next week as we get into the book of Revelation, Seven Cities. And lastly, I just say to you, Shalom, Shalom, peace be unto you.